Case file number 1.05. The Italian job. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, this week, or this episode, is going to be another spy story. Woo! You you did the one you did the one uh, a little earlier in our recording, and uh, this is my my chance to get one back. <laughs> Although this is not a Cold War story, this is actually just after nine eleven. Mm, okay. Apparently, they call it internally within the CIA the Italian job. Is that like the the first Italian job or second with Marky Mark? Well, I don't think it's either of them because they got caught. Mm. Yeah, that is true. I did like this that <laughs> Jason Statham. Actually, I did like that one, although the first one is legendary. Mm, that right. is true. Um, yeah. It was the go-to best car movie ever before uh, Ronin came out. Oh, yeah, Ronin. Oh, so Great good. car chases. Yes. Yes. Um, so this happened in Milan in February 2003. Again, this is just after 9-11, and it was related to uh, anti-Al-Qaeda post-9-11 anti-terrorism. Mm-hmm. A lot of the credit for this is uh, a producer who was then of NBC named Matthew Cole and is now currently your uh, rights for The Intercept. But uh, like, he did a lot of the, the, the work on this and actually uh, a good chunk of this comes from his uh, Black Hat presentation in 2013. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The subject of this the, was the, an imam of Milan named Abu Omar. He emigrated from Egypt in 2001 due to alleged membership in a group that had been declared a terrorist organization that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. He was in Milan. He was he was uh, teaching at a local mosque, and, and he had applied for and received political asylum in Italy when he when he left Egypt. Hmm, okay. So, imagine walking down the street, the Via Giuseppe. Garazzoni, and he's stopped by a police officer, and then he's pushed into a minivan, which speeds away to the Aviano Air Base that's jointly <laughs> run by the U.S. and the Italian military. Uh, he gets stuffed onto a plane, I believe it was, a Learjet is what's reported, and they fly over to Ramstein in Germany. Okay. And then he's stuck on another plane and sent over to Cairo. Jeez, okay. This is like straight out of Hollywood, like damn. Yes, this is what they call extraordinary rendition. Mm. When they've been making those Hollywood movies about it, this is the kind of thing they were talking about. Right. And the Hollywood movies, as far as the snatches go, aren't that far off. The gritty realism, kind of real. Yeah, damn. Um, so he was held and questioned and tortured for about 14 months in Egypt. Mm. What's reported is really quite bad. Although in 2006, 
uh, his lawyer basically said he wasn't tortured, only a little bit undernourished. And given Cairo and its reputation, what he says happened may very well have happened. We just okay. the external validation is unreliable. Is all I'm going to say. Yeah, it was a pretty shady time. Well, the question of how 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 unshady it is now is is, is up in yeah. the air. But it was still held in Egypt under house arrest until 2007. Okay, and when he was allowed to actually rejoin his family, so he got renditioned to a U.S. ally that was willing to torture, which is what is reported about a lot of these renditions in the W era. Uh, apparently they questioned him about a lot of stuff. He didn't have a lot of information to, to offer, but like he was under surveillance by the Italian military intelligence, as well as the CIA. Mm-hmm. He was associated with, or allegedly associated with the terrorist organization in Egypt. Uh, there's a lot of smoke. I didn't find any rock hard evidence that he was, in any way part of any any terrorist act or 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 or, uh, or was a direct associate of somebody who was convicted of that mm-hmm. but there's a lot of smoke okay you can at least see why the intelligence agencies were interested in him yeah even so if he had been part like maybe he was planning and they yeah they uh one him. of the things yeah one of the things that matthew cole said uh, is that he was recruiting and getting potential fighters sent over to afghanistan before 9 11. Uh, okay. so he, he absolutely had the opportunity and was associated with enough people where you could see at least at, at best, you could see why they were interested in, in him. Yeah. But the Milan police, well, somebody got kidnapped straight off of their streets, mm. literally. And this was a CIA job. But in the case of extraordinary rendition, you're working kind of beyond the law. Yeah, they, I can't imagine many local law authorities are like, we're totally fine with kidnapping. Like, do it right in front of us, please. Yeah, well, it wasn't done with like official forbearance, official acquiescence of the of the government. This is covert action. This mm-hmm. is this is you you are on foreign soil doing things that are against the law, even though they are a NATO ally and like we have air bases on their soil yeah. and uh and what's reported is is that they did this in some coordination with the italian um military intelligence okay the police officer that stopped him is reported to have been an associate possibly an asset of the milan station chief mm. so like it's not that nobody in official uh italy knew about this it's that it wasn't acknowledged and allowed at the Italian government level. Right, right. And we don't know, maybe they did know about it. And as soon as it blew up, as soon as it started to blow up, they just cut the kite string and let it go. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just saying that's certainly possible. Yep, yep. I don't want to say for sure that the Italian government wasn't consulted, but if they were given permission, they didn't stick up for the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So- a woman wit- actually witnessed the snatch. She she had a child and a loaf of bread with her, and she witnessed the stat- the snatch and told the Italian police. And the Italian police did what what modern police do at uh, at this point. They went to the cell phone towers mm-hmm. and they downloaded all of the tower data. Now, unlike now, where this is actually a pretty common technique in well I, in the U.S., you can get that tower data reasonably quickly. It took them fourteen months. Oh, geez. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's here and now. It's not like the CSI, you know, they pull it up 
real time. But yeah, it's I mean, not you, you, you got to do it in 30 minutes, maybe an hour special uh, timeline. Well, yeah, because TV, how are you going to put yeah, exactly. your investigations on TV if you can't get it within half an hour? Yeah. So they got the 14 months and they were using a piece of software called the Analyst's Notebook, which is other people might be familiar with Maltigo. It's similar to that. Where, where it allows you to create associations. It's early implementation of graph databases, or at least that's what it looks like. I don't know for sure. Where you have a bunch of, of nodes and associations. So you have like a, a cell phone ID and you have several records that are one cell phone ID and, two, and another cell phone ID. And this will say, oh, there's an association between those two nodes and let you turn that pretty easily into a uh, a map of what's happening. Okay. Uh, There's actually uh, some techniques that are really useful for discovering how things are associated. In fact, that's what they did here. And one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit at the end is some of the ideas behind this may be being used as analysis techniques or possibly um, blue team security techniques, figuring out what are enclaves within your network by using similar techniques. Right. So what can be isolated from from what else yeah yeah and in this case what they found when they went through that cell phone data is that there was a group of cell phones that only communicated amongst themselves and that is unusual Mm -hmm. so there's basically this star design that comes out in in the presentation that matt cole did there he actually has the star design because that information is available so they they had a group of cell phones that they strongly suspected were associated with the snatch because right. as they dug into what those cell phones did, they found that they were regularly making calls from along the street where he was snatched on. Okay. And they were making calls with themselves. Kind of very typical like burner phone. Yeah. So, but then they were like, okay, so what's going on with these cell phones? Where are they going? What are they doing? Because as you may or may not know when your cell phone is talking in order for you to receive a call, your phone needs to be talking to the tower so so your call can get routed to you and your phone can ring. Right. It does that by doing a keep alive ping like anything else mm-hmm. that might that might need a constant communication contact. Yeah, because I remember phone... learning about that um, when it came up that the what was it, the FBI had the the fake towers that were just basically like triangulating your position. Like so, you could be driving through the countryside and they would know exactly where you were going, even though they weren't legitimate cell phone towers. Yes. Yeah, the stingrays. Stingrays. Um, that, that's the yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, as a brief aside about about some of this, it's kind of relevant to this. There was a DEFCON presentation, and I don't remember exactly when, but a guy took a 3G card and a um, Raspberry Pi and connected them together mm-hmm. and wrote some very rudimentary proof of concept software. Um, he might have gotten a little bit a little bit more sophisticated, but he had like just barely to the point of replicability. Right. It would go and in the local network that that a 3G card could talk to, it would look for all the cell phone towers and let you log the cell phone towers. Mm -hmm. So if you built his thing and you maybe kept it in your apartment, your house or whatever, and you knew what the normal cell phone towers were. Yeah. yeah. Then you could see if there was something new. I do remember like, I think like weeks or months after like the first like news broke about the Stingrays. Uh, there was an app you could download um, if you rooted your phone mm. that could pick out stingrays. So maybe it was derived from his code. No, actually, <laughs> some of the stuff he said, and I'm vaguely recalling, that is that the stingrays 
when they were fake cell phones, cell phone towers were all kind of did it the same way. They had various artifacts in the metadata of the tower that mm. made it easy to discern them from other things. Okay. I believe, and this is not gospel. I'm kind of going out on a limb, but I, I, I believe he said something along the lines of after the existence of stingrays and those things were revealed, they started getting smarter about how to make their metadata blend in better to the regular cell phone networks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that reminds um, me like just kind of like how Nmap can tell operating systems just by their time to live on a ping. Yes. Uh, time to live and randomization of their TCP sequence numbers, mm. as well as uh, how they respond to various types of traffic. But yeah. we'll talk about Nmap later <laughs> when we talk about yeah. scanning the internet. <laughs> but uh, it's actually a pretty good point that um, some of the techniques that really got hammered out with Nmap became important pieces for various other kinds of passive and active um, networks or uh, network identification and not just on IP networks. Anyway, <laughs> back to the story. <laughs> so they were able to identify where they went, the hotels they stayed at and who they associated with. And they found looking through all of the phones and all of the SIM cards that there were two names that came up as kind of central nodes a name Raymond Harbaugh and a name George Purvis. Raymond Harbaugh, we're pretty sure is a legend, as in a, a, a fake name used for covert action purposes. Okay. George Purvis has been verified to be the guy's real name. Really? That's yes. odd to use your real name. Not as odd as I think we expect it to be. Really? Um, huh, yeah. yeah. I guess I'm, I'm spoiled by Hollywood and all like the code names and stuff. Actually, one of the end conclusions I had of reading all of this stuff is not that the CIA doesn't do the operational security stuff that we think they do. Mm. It's that they're as consistent about it as regular people, not superheroes in, yeah, in yeah. trench coats and, and fedoras. Right. That they make mistakes like everybody else does. But I mean, some of the egregious parts about this that we get along later is what they did and how long it took them to correct these things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it could also be like, you know, they were they were going through code names and Ray was like, I want like Platinum Falcon. And they're like, we're not giving you that. Like, we're just going to call you Ray from now on. Well, by all reports, this guy was a longtime CIA, a CIA officer. In fact, the conclusion for both of these guys, Raymond, the Raymond Har whoever Raymond Harbaugh really was and George Purvis, is that they were the most senior members of the mission team here. Mm, okay. That they were they were experienced foreign operatives, they'd done this a lot. Yeah. And that's why they were the central notes of communication. And we we believe them to be the, the leaders of the mission team. Makes sense. But this was a mission team. They were sent here, they were sent to Milan specifically to do this job. They weren't supposed to contact the local station, except for Harbaugh and Purvis. And when they did, they were supposed to contact them with a clean you know, practice good operational security. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that this Harbaugh guy, he changed the SIM in the cell phone, but the cell phone was used for the mission. And while you may not, with your caller ID, mm -hmm. see, like when they, you change a SIM, you get a different number. Yeah. But the tower also sees the phone serial number. Oh, okay. So when they were looking through the metadata, they were able to see 
the same serial number using two different sims and one of them contacted the mission right and one of them contacted the consulate huh. yeah i did not know that like the phone serial number would be tied into that yeah. it's very suspicious when you see a, uh, a sim swapping back and forth like on one phone yeah well not entirely suspicious in not, not like event. every like day to day but like yeah. when you're investigating a kidnapping and then you see that yeah. well that then it becomes suspicious right Yes, it's an important piece of circumstantial evidence, but it's not an alerting event, especially in Europe where people move from country to country and will switch sims because of various local plans and stuff. I mean, oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I know, at least as a, as, a, as a U.S. traveler, that every time I go overseas, I'm very likely to swap to get a local prepaid sim and, and swap sims. Yeah, I need to start doing that. I used T-Mobile last time and I just started at a blank phone for two weeks. I actually, uh, after my last in the Caribbean, my last experience with with the sim not working very well, I think that I may pay for the international stuff, uh, the international service, when at least when I'm not going to Europe. Yeah. Just because Europe, it's pretty well figured out, but it's not necessarily as well figured out every place on Earth. Yeah, that's true. So when I started pulling some of these, some of the. Uh, the people that were associated with these cell phones, because they were able to find the hotels and the hotels were, uh, when they asked the hotels, so where are the Americans? They told them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and between the comings and goings, they were able to figure out from the hotel and the cell phone metadata that they had, they were able to figure out basically which phones belong to who, more or less. Mm. And they were able to get the check-in information in the hotel. Yeah. It, so... They got things like passport numbers, which, well, they could get to the, they got to the, the passport numbers. I don't know if they got them from the hotel or if they were able to associate them from the immigration record or, well, the visitation visa records. But yeah, the thing that they found was in, within this group, there were passport numbers that were serialized, that were in order. <laughs> Not suspicious at all. No, no. It's very common to, you know, go vacation with the person that got the passport right after you. I think it might be interesting if you've got access to those records to say, okay, within the last 30 days, am I seeing any set of passports that were serialized, you know, 10 in a row or something like that? Yeah, the chances that I can't believe are very high. Right. But like, I don't know if you had a family of four, you all applied for passports at the same time, whether or not they'd all be in order, passport numbers were all be in order. Yeah, that is true. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Mm -hmm. Although... That seems poor operational security too, because a passport number is actually quite important, and being able to have predictability in that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Also, I can't believe the bureaucracy of the government. All of your applications come in together, and they all get processed together. Like you know, that stuff just gets thrown on the floor and gets picked up and reshuffled into other folders, and then five weeks later, finally gets uh, processed. So what you're saying is like every dealer that is too slow for Vegas, just goes to various bureaucracies and just shuffles paper, like literally shuffles paper and then gives it out so that, so that nothing can be connected to anything else. I could see that happening. Well, hey, I mean, at least they're being employed. Yeah, yeah. So the station chief for the Milan station was a guy named Robert Lady. So they were, when they were able to associate the mission team with the station, they had probable cause. Well, when they pulled his cell phone location records, where do you think he was immediately after the snatch? Mm, I don't know. Egypt. 
Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mm. the guy's name, uh, so the guy's name was Robert Lady, veteran CIA officer, but uh, he ended up running into some problems because what happened was that the Milan prosecutor prosecuted these CIA agents in absentia in 2007 and convicted them. Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. They were tried and convicted in Italian court. Hmm. Part of the reason why we have as much information as we do about this is that the Milan prosecutor made darn sure that the information was public and out there, including like the passport photos and whatnot of the people that they were able to identify. Right. There ended up being about 26 or 27 agents involved. It burned pretty much all of them for covert work, including Robert Lady. Damn. Yeah. So you might wonder why one of our allies would basically throw the CIA under the bus. Turns out the CIA has done its, some of its deeds in Italy uh, over the years since, since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, even though uh, Italy remains a dem- democratic country, the Communist Party did win some local elections over the years right. uh, in Turin, I believe. And there were the Red Brigades that uh, throughout the Cold War existed and did some terrorist stuff in Italy over the Cold War. They were called the, the, the Red Brigade brigades the brigadi rosa oh, okay so you you could see how the cia in its anti-communist fervor might pay a little bit more attention to italy than other places yeah yeah if they see the brigades rising up and potentially gaining a foothold yeah um so they along with the kgb the both the um, ussr and america interfered pretty openly in the 1948 italian elections Covert payments, propaganda, maybe some black bag work. That stuff is not confirmed, but Mm -hmm. wouldn't be shocking. The CIA at the time wasn't really great at those things or isn't known to be great at those things. Because prior to World War II, America didn't have explicitly an intelligence agency. We had several military intelligence functions, but they were not entirely dissimilar to us now, more concentrated on signals intelligence than they were on human intelligence and covert action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they also, there was also the thing called Project Gladio, which was a program to arm and train stay behind fighters uh, in case communists managed to take over Italy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the things that came out of all this research is that there's a book, Project Gladio, that I just got and I didn't get a chance to read before doing this episode, but it alleges in basically the, the splash of it that the, the CIA was coordinating with the Vatican and the mafia in addition to the Italian government in order to do this. And there are allegations, nothing proven, that mm. there were, that it wasn't always smooth sailing, that they might have done a false flag activity to blame the Red Brigades. That seems like the least the least strong allegation, the, the, or the, the, the one that's most likely not to be true, but the allegation was made and not, you know, disproven. Right. And then things that are a little bit more likely to be true are that some domestic terrorism stuff that they had were people with training and materials from Project Gladio doing it on their own. Hmm. So you train guerrillas and they decide they have a beef that is nothing 
related right. to what you trained them for, but they have the skills and the stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you gave them the toys, exactly. they're going to use them. So I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but the CIA may have left a bad taste in somebody's mouth. The Project Gladio didn't get disbanded until 1990. So it wasn't, it was only about 13 years before this happened. It would have right. been in memory of the folks that worked that. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah, being very recent memory of all the people um, with a uh, an axe to grind. I'm just saying, I can see where they're coming from. There is no reports that any of this has anything explicitly to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, fast forward to a few years later, Mossad is operating in Lebanon, and Hezbollah rolled up one of their entire spy rings, and Mossad pretty sure that it was their cell phone usage that got them Mm. so they tell the cia the cia is like nah no way that's happening there's no way hezbollah has access to that metadata in lebanon and then 2009 2010 they did some counterintelligence analysis probably because some more stuff was going wrong than should have been (laughs) that's usually how that goes yeah not saying for sure just saying that seems likely Mm -hmm. yeah Turns out that they proved that Hezbollah did have access to cell phone tower data, which probably means that they had done things with that data that provided evidence that they knew things they shouldn't have known any other way. Right. And given this alarming conclusion, what do you think they did? I'm going to guess they did not tell them. CIA did nothing about this. They yeah. didn't change their signal, their operational security, or at least that's what Matthew Cole's report. So... Another year passes and Hezbollah publicly outs two CIA assets and the whole CIA station on uh, Hezbollah TV. Yeah, uh, just boom. They found everything using network analysis of tower data, looking for weird use patterns. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like two cell phones that only communicate with each other and only do so once a month for 30 seconds. Right. Stuff like that. So they they used those patterns and probably the standard analysis pattern of finding an anomaly, investigating, getting some correlating information, using that correlating information to then get more data from your primary source, working back and forth, just like the Italian government did, where they had some cell phone data, they found some correlation, they they used that to pull other data, other cell phone data to find out more. Right. So Hezbollah successfully did this and outed uh, several CIA agents. Now, this seems like, haha, the cell phone got, or the CIA got pwned. And to be fair to the CIA, or at least what they always say, is we only report on their failures and not their successes. Yeah. But we only have documentation on their failures, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> but for us, in the real world, Shortly before this was this stuff was presented in 2013 at Black Hat, we had Edward Snowden mm-hmm. and what he released. And whatever you think about what he did and how he got the information, the fact is that we know we have evidence that hasn't been refuted that the NSA was recording cell phone metadata and keeping it for a long time. Yeah. The NSA has essentially admitted that this occurs and. General Alexander, the head of the NSA at the time, uh, said, we don't record calls, just metadata. Well, network analysis and, you know, all this location analysis that comes straight from that metadata 
might tell you more than the cell phone conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's really the tough part about all of this in terms of our privacy, because the NSA wasn't supposed to be doing that. Yeah, They have essentially tacit permission, although I don't know that they have explicit permission to do this kind of observation, but because they're not supposed to be doing this on American soil. Yeah, yeah. Now, if FBI was doing it, this would be a little bit more nebulous, especially in light of the powers they get from the Patriot Act. But at the very least, at the, when the NSA started doing this, there's a reason they didn't make it easy for Congress to find out what they were doing and all but lied about doing it because they really weren't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have the data to tell basically every place you've been and pretty much everybody you've met with and associated with everywhere you've had your cell phone on you for at least the last five years. You know, you can tell a lot, like I was just listening to a podcast uh, just earlier that was talking about how a lot of these social media sites like um, Twitter and everything like that tends to know more about you than even you know about yourself. Like they'll offer certain like, hey, like it seems like you were in an abusive relationship and like, you know, like here's some steps I'm getting out of it. And you're like, wait, shit, am I? Because it just the things you're Googling without even, you know, consciously knowing what you're looking for there's something extrapolating all that information, feeding it into, yeah. you know, an algorithm and then spewing out. It's like um, the one story on Amazon where the, was it the one girl was shopping for certain things and Amazon started hitting her up for um, diapers. Yeah. Diapers. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, was it, was it that she didn't know she was pregnant? I think she was looking for pregnancy tests and then got, and then got uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like in her father, like pick up on something, or something. Like that. but you know, it, it's scary that like, yeah. And freaky how much you can tell just from that metadata. Back in like the 90s, what a book I read might have been Eat the Rich by uh, by PJ O'Rourke said something along the lines of that Visa can tell whether or not you're going to get a divorce within the next five to seven years based on your credit card purchases. And that was back in like the 80s, maybe early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like as most folks in the information security world are privacy is is at least something that we've given a lot of thought to, if not something that we're zealously guarding of. Mm-hmm. But the question that I keep coming to, because I see a lot of value in permanent non-reputable uh, digital records. And you've heard me probably talk about having a national ID card that is a digital ID, mm-hmm. uh, much like the, the PIV or CAT cards that we use in government IT that acts as your social security card, but gives you a real digital identity that you can use for electronic communications that you can digitally sign and digitally encrypt in a way that scales in a reasonable way. But that's a permanent identifier. And a lot of people are resistant to that. They, They want to maintain the state system, but there's a lot of disadvantages to that. Things that make doing good government, at least in my opinion, harder. And the question I keep asking myself, and I struggle with it because I don't think I have a good answer, is why does Amazon and Google and Visa or MasterCard or Amex get to know more about me than the government does? Yeah, I mean, it's true. Well, there is, especially in American culture, the lashing out of big government. Like, we don't want them to know a lot of information about us. We want it as small as possible them to know as little as possible about all of us. However, on the flip side of that, we, we then eagerly throw all of our information at these private companies who are not beholden to us in 
anyway. Like yes. they're entirely beholden to their shareholders. They will sell us up a river as like to flip, you know, an extra dime for their end of the year. And we know that when they're when they're acting in a way that we believe is in our interest, it is because our opinion matters to them at that time in terms of what they can sell us on our participation. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're very as soon as the to, eyes are off of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very quick to hop onto whatever the new uh, social media like trend is, or like you know, like say like yeah, we support X, Y, and Z. Only when it's now become the majority of the populace supports X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then they pretend to sit back and say like, yeah, we were there like with you. I mean, all you have to do is look at uh, COVID and the shutdowns and everything, and the commercials that they were airing back starting in March and. I don't see them as much anymore, but a lot of those commercials were like, you know, like, oh, as you sit there home alone, you know, like trying to deal with COVID, <laughs> remember, Kellogg's is there with you. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, technically you are because you made most of the products in my kitchen, but you don't care about me. Yes. And uh, yeah, so at the very least, the government has some beholdenness to us and they have our long-term interests more in mind than these companies do. Yeah, yeah. And Even if in your in your opinion, it's marginally more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they are beholden to us in some way because we vote them in whether or not, mm -hmm. you know, you agree with the entire voting system in this country. But I'm not voting on the uh, CEO of uh, Amazon. Right. Well, and the, the counter side to that, because it's always arguments and counter arguments, is there was the OPM hack. Everybody who got a clearance or potentially everybody who had got a clearance for a significant period of time, their information was potentially exposed. Mm -hmm. So that's them keeping that data secure. And then in terms of the government doing the appropriate thing with data, there's this NSA issue of them collecting data they weren't legally entitled to. Yeah, it's a... I don't know if Catch-22 is the right metaphor for it, but it's like there is a lot of, well, there's no way the government could hold all this data. Like they would, it would leak. I mean, you and I both know uh, the IT infrastructure in certain departments of the government, let alone state level stuff is just abysmal at best. Yeah. But on the flip side, do you really trust Amazon, Google, and all these other companies to house your data securely? Like look at like the target breach or the Sony breach or like yeah. anything else we're going to discuss in the future. Yeah, well, in terms of your, in terms of a lot of that data, it's always, you're only secure as the least secure company that you give it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so like, it's not an easy set of questions to answer. There is a level of risk to everything. And on the federal government side, the point of bureaucracy is not to raise the level of achievement. It is to raise the floor of achievement. Mm -hmm. There's a hope that you're less likely to have truly egregious problems in a world where that bureaucracy is setting the floor. Yeah. We know big companies do a fairly good job, mostly because some of the breaches that we're probably going to end up talking about, there were some major credit card breaches. The industry only created PCI and the PCI standards after those breaches occurred not before. They weren't proactive about it, at least not at first. They put together some fairly decent standards and they improved them over the years, uh, not always just because the house is coming down, but the impetus to take security seriously didn't start from the beginning. It started after the problems were had. Yeah. I mean, 
there are pros and cons to everything. You know, this is not a political podcast. Yeah. Capitalism has its pros and cons. When it comes to information security, uh, they will both, you know, secure your data if it behooves them to, and they can make, you know, a dime off of it. But they will also cut corners because that saves them money in the long run. And that could mean your data getting exfiltrated out to a different country mm -hmm. and stolen by hackers. So, you know, there is ups and downs and yeah. yeah. If, There's no perfect solution. Yeah, if there was a definitive answer, you and I wouldn't be paid what we're paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm glad that there's no definitive answer. I like money. Yes. <laughs> so that was The Italian Job. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.